Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. Jennifer, tell us about our guest today. Okay. Well, today we're speaking with Nina Marie Lister, Professor and Graduate Director of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, where she founded and directs Ecological Design Lab. She holds a Margulies National Design for Living Prize for her work in ecology and design, and she was awarded honorary membership in the American Society of Landscape Architects. Lister is a co-editor of the Ecosystem Approach, Projective Ecologies, and is the author of more than 100 scholarly and professional publications. Her work connects people to nature and cities through green infrastructure design for climate resilience, biodiversity, and human well-being. Our conversation today was inspired by Nina Marie's presentation at the Biophilic Leadership Summit, where she discussed the city's bylaws throughout North America, specifically Canada, that actually discourage flourishing biodiverse habitats on private property in favor of something that many of us are so used to that we don't even think about it, which is the manicured lawn. Yes, Nina Marie is such a fantastic guest. And in our conversation, we'll get into everything from why we have lawns in the first place, how to break down the norms we're used to in our everyday lives to foster biodiversity, and why resilience is the new sustainability. Nina Marie, we are so happy you're here with us today. Thank you so much for saying yes to our podcast. Well, thanks for asking me. I'm excited to be here, too. We were blown away by your Biophilic Leadership Summit talk and felt like we needed to share that with more people. <laughs> like right uh, away. <laughs> and we needed to share you with more people. Yeah. Thank we you. We know that you are very well respected in the space. And what you shared at the Biophilic Leadership Summit was so incredible. Monica, and I know about you, but can you tell us a little bit more and our listeners more about your background? Sure. This is one of those crazy backgrounds that while you're making it, you can't believe it's ever useful. (laughs) (laughs) We love that. I was trained first as a scientist. I'm an ecologist in my undergraduate and early graduate work. And I wondered why a lot of science didn't get put into practice by practitioners, policymakers, designers. And so I decided to pursue work in planning. I became a professional planner and I ended up working in this strange and magical space in between the disciplines, which some people would call falling between the cracks. Mm. But that's actually where the light gets in. That's where interesting things Ah. happen. So I've been really fortunate to work with landscape architects, engineers, artists, architects, and to bring ecology and a kind of literacy, you might say, Mm -hmm. and understanding of how we connect to nature. And you guys are very familiar with that as well. So that's, I think, what we're here to talk about. And I'm now working as an ecological designer, as a land-based practitioner. We can come Mm. back to that maybe in our conversations. Most of all, more than anything else, I collaborate with a lot of different people to make interesting things happen. Oh, we love that. Well, since this is the Biophilic Solutions podcast, we tend to ask everybody where that term came into your life. So has it always been a part because you studied ecology? Was it something that was just sort of embedded or did you stumble upon it at some point in your career? And what does it mean to you? It is a really good question. Some people still think the term biophilia is technical. I look into the history of words and it definitely means to be connected. And that really defines both my practice and who I am as a person. And I would also say my own ethic of being strongly connected to the land that sustains us. And even as an ecologist early on, I was familiar with E.O. Wilson's work. And of course, that term 
was made very popular in one of his popular books, meaning to say it wasn't just a scientific term. It was actually a book in 1984 that many of you will recognize. For me, the term also defined a way of practicing ecology, that it wasn't just something we stand back and observe, but actually it's a complex system in which we are embedded. Mm. So you might say that we're embedded practitioners as well as observers, and we're not just along for the ride. So it's a big part of practice for me. I love that you also speak. I've read about a lot of your work and I've been seeing some of your videos and you talk a lot about resilience in nature and that resilience isn't about like bouncing back to normal. And especially during COVID times, what is that normal and was it normal to begin with for us? And nature really kind of teaches us about bouncing back, but bouncing into a new or transformative kind of space. And I see that you're really doing that, the conversations, but also how do we look at these living ecosystems around us to bounce into or bounce forward into to have a better relationship with the natural world around us. So I really love that you're having these conversations and you're doing the work, especially in your own yard. So maybe you can even touch on what's happening in your own yard. That sparked a very big conversation. Well, I get asked that question a lot, which for me is a great irony. I always imagine that my home and my family's property was just something we did in the off hours of our daily work, and it has become my life. (laughs) 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 Um, First of all, thank you for talking about resilience. My friend, Katrina Hill, once defined resilience as the new sustainability. It was this new term that suddenly appeared and sort of supplanted sustainability Mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And you're absolutely right that it is a way to think about ourselves as adaptive, that the living systems in which we are embedded are actually the best model for both sustainability, if we're thinking about future generations, and about resilience or how we adapt change. How are we flexible and how can we move into states with a positive sense of adaptation? In other words, my yard for me is very much a kind of experiment in progress about how does adaptation work and how can we think about changing conditions and providing the most robust set of opportunities for when conditions change, when we get that storm event or when we get more rain than we expected or when there's a hot, dry summer that we didn't expect. So building the resilience in our own yard starts with a diversity of plant life, a diversity of habitats. And that's what my yard is about. I think what you're asking about, though, is maybe how others see that yard. And I live in a neighborhood that has an awful lot of lawns. It doesn't have very much diversity, actually. In fact, Uh it doesn't have very much diversity of people either. So I think that I broke the rules when I allowed (laughs) my my lawn to be a little promiscuous. Uh, (laughs) I love that. I've never heard that about a lawn before, but I love it. often referred to biological diversity in systems. And when I say we, I mean, anybody who studies them understands that diversity is the key to their resilience, their ability to adapt to surprising events or sudden and sometimes catastrophic events. We need diversity and we need it in our human societies as well. Cultural diversity is, a, I think, a helpful mirror. So I live in a neighborhood that has one size of front yard, and that's mostly mowed lawns. And our family lives on a slope and beautiful corner lot. We're very fortunate to enjoy a corner lot. And that means there's more yard. And it also means that it didn't make a lot of sense to us that in the limited time we have to garden and to be in nature in our city, why would we mow it down and more importantly, push a gas-powered mower up a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. Maybe I am yep, like, yep. Uh, 
So we grow a very diverse native yard that looks a little bit like a meadow underneath a fruit orchard. If you can imagine what that looks like, your listeners might know that that would be native fruit trees, which in our area are mostly apples, but also pears and some cultivated apricots. They were there when we got there. And there was a a lawn kind of clipped in one part of the yard that suffers from an awful lot of erosion. It's a steep slope, uh, upwards of 20% in some cases. So we looked to nature to provide an easier way to manage the space, but also a more creative way to create something that would be appealing, we thought. We noticed that school kids like to pass by and sit on the logs we had placed under the trees. We noticed that a lot of people stopped to let their pets uh, relieve themselves at the end of the slope so that made growing conditions a little tougher. And we also noticed that people stopped a lot to appreciate the fruit. Sometimes they picked the fruit, which was fine with us because there's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And most of all, it provided a cool, shady spot in the hottest days of summer. And it provided interest in the wintertime. I live in Toronto. I'm coming to you from a winter city of sorts. And so the different diversity of plant life provided visual interest. There's an awful lot of songbirds, an awful lot of mammals. We have rabbits, raccoons, foxes. We had a coyote this summer come and hang out, which probably made us less popular than ever. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a long story to really tell you that our yard looks different. It's biodiverse. It's rich. It also sounds beautiful. Our neighbors didn't think so. Someone called the bylaw enforcement officer who came to tell us that we had to mow our grass. And as a planner, you can imagine my surprise to say, I thought we had a bylaw that supported biodiversity because I've worked a lot in the public sector and our city has very progressive policies around pollinators, around shade, keeping urban heat island down, around biodiversity, and even the creation of habitat for wildlife. That's that's in public land, not on private property. Ah, so that's interesting. Where's the distinction? The private yard owners are effectively being not only discouraged, but prevented from doing the very thing that our city asks our citizens to do on public land. And this is, as it turns out, Mm -hmm. is common throughout North America. We're not unusual in that regard. Yeah. No, definitely where I grew up. I'm in Atlanta, but I grew up in Southern California outside of Los Angeles. And it was just like beautiful suburban neighborhood, but like lawn city. And if you didn't have that clipped and if you didn't have it manicured, you were in big trouble, like even your parkway and your trees. And so I want to hear the story of how that arc of getting that, it's not really a ticket, but getting in trouble and then what you did. But before, I'm wondering if you could tell us, why do we have lawns? Well, that is a podcast all by itself. (laughs) Um, There's a lot to say about that, but let's try and be really succinct to say that it's the norm Mm -hmm. in a settler colonial culture like North America, Canada and the United States share that history. We have a kind of tendency to want to have a landscape of leisure that suggests that we have arrived when one achieves the suburban dream or the independence of a home. The idea that a lawn represents a state of leisure, wealth, achievement. Think of all the hilarious lawn care commercials you've seen over the years. The guys competing for the greenest, shortest clipped lawn, the weed-free lawn. Uh, Some of them are amusing. But underneath that humor is actually something very serious. That that lawn, as it was introduced to North America, is actually pasture grasses from Europe that didn't blend well with native North American wildlife, for example. And in fact, it was a tradition of bringing plant life from away to help the colonists feel comfortable and also to 
prior to wealth. If you think about the earliest introduction of the lawns in the United States, that's Thomas Jefferson's gift, if you will. Ah. Beautiful lawns were landscapes of leisure, but on whose back did they rest? These landscapes were created by labor and oftentimes by slave labor. They were also, in my country, in Canada, they also displaced indigenous plants, native plants that had medicinal, spiritual, and healing properties. Mm -hmm. So the lawn is an insidious invader of its own, and Mm -hmm. it requires enormous inputs to maintain. And I wouldn't want to suggest that the lawn is unwelcome as a concept. There are plenty of places in our public spaces where we can all appreciate the common lawn Mm -hmm. or places of collective celebration, of mourning, of grieving, of protest. So the lawn is a very important symbol for gathering people together on the one hand. Mm -hmm. That's public space. And on private space, we might want to think about other ways to reintroduce and reconnect with the natural diversity of the places that sustain us. So the lawn has a mixed history. I'd also say, if if I may, there's a kind of very pejorative judgment around the lawn as well, that it represents what is controlled, what is maintained, Mm. what is appealing. And it suggests culturally and socially a kind of collective norm that if you disobey, or you digress, you do something differently from the lawn, you are somehow signaling that you're outside the norm. Think about it culturally. The front yard was a place where we show conformity, we show control, order, and cleanliness. And that usually mm-hmm. means getting rid of the diversity. I think of it as a curly-haired person. I oh, yeah, me, all three of us. I don't think <laughs> straight, ordered, neat, yes. And we also know there's sometimes some judgment historically with that. When yeah. there are loose curls, there might be loose morals, that's just right. like in the lawn that's not neatly clipped. <laughs> and that's funny. Right? We don't know wow. what kind of promiscuity is happening there. That's so there's right. A kind of, there's a kind of social judgment that over the years is associated with oh, the lawn. That is fascinating, fascinating and so fun. Now, is it true? Like, I feel like one of my kids told me that the lawn was originally, I don't know if it came out of France or England, but the queen or royalty had it. And they had all of these servants that literally clipped it by hand before there was the lawnmower. So it was this status symbol because the people in charge had it. And so if you own one. That meant that you had money to your point. And then obviously the lawnmower comes along and like, quote, anybody can have a lawn, if you will. And here we are in North America with them everywhere. But I love the idea that it's a sense of control and order Mm -hmm. and cleanliness. And I totally agree with you. I started in California as people were starting to pull up their lawns to do drought tolerant landscapes, right? That became a little more wild, whether that was olive trees or succulents or various rocks. But it was like, whoa, 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 what's going on at that house? Yeah. So exactly. You broke the rules. You broke Uh the mold. And it's very helpful to think of all the adjectives we use to describe yards that are not lawns. We call them wild, unkempt, disorganized, overgrown, Mm -hmm. excessive. All of these words are also used to describe nonconforming social behavior. And Mm. so there's a very powerful analogy to think about there. I'm not suggesting that most people who have a front yard that's a lawn really think about that. But I am saying that it's a powerful convention 
convention of having a lawn. That has become a convention. And I would say we now talk a lot about ways to break that convention because we know it's better for the ecology and better. It's more helpful for us mm-hmm. to have habitats that sustain other species as well. It helps our connection to nature is something that this podcast knows all about. Right. And at the same time, the desire for this clipped little square, even in the smallest of private yards, mm-hmm. has the unintended impact or consequence of eradicating the very species that we need to yeah. be helpful for pollination, mm-hmm. for stormwater infiltration, for wow. even our mental health and wellness. This has become so clear during the pandemic. The mm-hmm. time in our gardens, time to sustain and cultivate diversity is directly connected to our health. Oh my God, I love that. And at Serenby, we weren't able to be in person for the summit this year, but in Serenby, we sort of say there are no lawns, but we really discourage them. So there's, so a few people, we don't say you can't have one, but we very much educate. And so you very rarely will see one. And we were inspired, or really Steve Nigren, by a gentleman called Brian Ganey, who in North America was really well known for a book called The Well-Placed Weed, which I love. And then I think also thinking about weeds, it's like, what is a weed? Mm-hmm. Well, is it yes. really a weed? You know, I mean, I think that's a whole other, yeah. whole other conversation of like, well, why? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the sixth annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Well, it goes hand in hand with what I've been talking about. And you're asking about the conformity and the moral righteousness of the lawn. A weed is, of course, just a plant that is unwanted in the wrong place. Or it's a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered. Depending. (laughs) There we go. I like that. (laughs) My good friend and colleague, Peter Del Tredici, has written a lot about 
books that used to be called Weeds, Guides to Weeds. He's written a, a guide to the wild urban plants of the Northeast. Ah. Um, so he recognizes that these are opportunistic plants that given the right conditions will proliferate. And they certainly have their place at times. But of course, it's like trash to treasure. One person's junk is another person's treasure. One person's unwanted plant is someone's weed or someone's beautiful plant, depending on yeah. who you ask. Yeah. And it is really important to understand where those labels come from. And in which landscapes we encourage which plants. Certainly we want to support native biodiversity, but in some places we might want a little bit more cosmopolitan ecology or promiscuous plants because we need them to help Mm -hmm. cultivate lands that are denuded or perhaps derelict. So Mm -hmm. we want to be careful that we're not excluding people's right to their gardens with a variety of of plant life. Yeah, we, we always talk about just if you can learn and you have knowledge, now you have the opportunity to be more thoughtful in your choices and not Mm -hmm. wanting to say you can't do this thing, but reconsider it possibly. Or if you do, let's do something that doesn't take all these inputs. If you are going to do a lawn, then figure out how to do it in a more sustainable way. But I do love the idea of the public sphere because so many gathering places are great lawns and they really are wonderful gathering Mm -hmm. spaces. So well, we should, maybe we should adopt the principle that our medical colleagues do, which is to do no harm. Yes, this exactly. is a good bylaw principle. Do no harm. Mm-hmm. We try to support bylaws that I think show that whatever we're doing in our gardens, and our yards does not harm the local ecology and it doesn't harm people. Hmm. And that's not a terribly difficult principle to adhere to. It's really not about weeds or about the lawn or about which plants, but rather that whatever we plant there should not be harmful. I love that idea. And I have to tell you this, Nina, because you'll probably enjoy this the most. I live in New York City. And then during the beginning of the pandemic, my backyard is Central Park and I spend every day in Central Park. And for the first time in my life, I witnessed the fact that there was no more mowing of the lawns. No one was keeping up with the growth of wildlife really in Central Park. And it was delightful to see real native meadows kind of sprouting up all over Central Park. And I was just like jumping for joy saying, look at this. It's not mowed. It looks wonderful. There's always like new species of plants and weeds growing everywhere. And it was just, I was ecstatic about it. everyone else I was with was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you, that's just a weed. I'm like, no, this is great. It looks wonderful. And it was funny because I remember the very first time seeing it mowed for the first time. I said, oh, I really liked it. And I enjoyed the beauty of the wildness of it in the middle of New York City. So it was an interesting time to see. Well, it's also interesting because it's ephemeral that we are reminded that landscapes change Mm -hmm. and that we can encourage growth and then we can change our minds and try something different. So there's also that quality to them that they don't need to be considered this static Mm -hmm. picture of what is possible, but rather that there are many possible stages of these conditions. We could have a meadow for a certain amount of time and then allow it to succeed into a small shrubland, for example. These are all possibilities. You taught me something by something I heard you said, which I didn't think about, even though I love nature and I'm studied as much as I can. I'm trying to learn as much as I can all the time, which I so enjoy. But I love that you talk about landscapes are not separate than in a city. They are a part of the city. So how do we move through these patches? Not just people, but animals, plants, birds, species are all a part of these it's like ecology of a space and place and they're not separate then. So I just love the idea that I'm in this concrete jungle, but this little park right there is not separate from me. It's a part of these corridors, as you said, from place to place, which I thought was really beautiful. 
Yeah, I think that's part of us talking about biophilia. It's part of a tangible recognition that we are connected to the natural world. Mm -hmm. It sustains us and we are part of it. We're not separate. Even in the idea that there are these myriad creatures, sometimes hidden in plain sight, moving around us, under us sometimes. This is, to me, a very important concept to think about because it's analogous to how we treat each other as human beings, Mm. that we recognize that a diversity of human beings are important to make a community and that we're more resilient when we are inclusive of that diversity. And that same principle holds true for our ecology. Our gardens are a good place to test those ideas that we ask important questions like, who belongs, rather than deciding what's not welcome and what we weed mm-hmm. out and get rid of. So it's a useful way to think about it. Yeah, I think learning from nature and taking notes from them and how do we incorporate that into sort of our cultural life from their cultural life. I do want to take us back, though, to once you were told, no, 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 doesn't look right. This yeah. is not going to happen. So this is just you. This is your yard. It's at your personal property. And you think this is beautiful and it is beautiful and it's totally biodiverse. They say you can't do it. You have to conform to this thing. What happens next? Well, I did, I think, what any person who has a platform would do. And I tweeted. (laughs) (laughs) I use social media. I do what my kids do and what my students do. And first I thought, how is it possible that as the director of a graduate program that teaches professional planning, by the way, planners write bylaws and municipal codes, how would I not know this? And the truth is that I did know it. I thought we had solved this problem because I was very aware of people who challenged this very same bylaw in the late 1990s. And what I didn't realize that the city in like happens in many cities, when you revise a bylaw, they really throw out the old one. They just add something to it. And what they added was a special clause that recognized based on a court decision, everyone has the right. This is I'm speaking about Toronto. Everyone has the right to express their environmental values on their private property and in their yard. This was a decision by the Ontario Superior Court, which recognized, I guess, in general language, we'd say the constitutionality of one's right to express their values in their private yard. Hmm. Well, that's what I was doing. The city offers something called a natural garden exemption, which meant that individuals like me could apply to the city, register their home address and explain that they had something called a natural garden, which was poorly defined. And what I argued is because I'm a professor and the director of a planning program, I thought this is my obligation. I actually have to do this. And I really need to help everyday people understand how a bylaw that sounds this complicated could possibly work. And I said, no, I don't want that exemption. I think that's ridiculous because there are so many people who are trying to follow the city's own lead by in their own landscape, trying to plant for native diversity, trying to plant a rich selection of habitats. And they're trying to do the right thing to support a more climate resilient and biodiverse yard. Mm -hmm. Why should they have to apply for an exemption? And when I refused it, this became a matter of public debate. And when I tweeted this very same sentiment, we essentially got picked up by various news outlets and the rest, as they say, is print history. (laughs) (laughs) The short answer is we had the mayor come to tea in the garden with an environmental lawyer, David Donnelly, supported by lots of different colleagues who've been doing this work for a very long time. And we effectively got the bylaw changed. That's amazing. Now, 
the neighbors, were they pro, were they con? Did they talk to you about it? (laughs) What has happened? Have other, you know, yards in your neighborhood looking similar to yours now? Have you started a trend? What's going on? Well, great question. What I got was love notes. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure I got hate mail too, but I didn't pay attention to that. <laughs> I, got that away. <laughs> I got lovely letters, not for me, but for the garden. We oh. got people dropping handwritten notes into our mailbox. We got people writing emails just saying, what a beautiful yard. We're so inspired. We didn't know you could do this. And more importantly, we didn't know you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, of course, there are always people who are unhappy with something that looks different. And as I said, I happen to be in a neighborhood of mostly single detached family homes that are, it's not a suburb, actually. It's in the central part of the city to the Midtown West. And it was surprising to me, actually, that there weren't more yards. But Here's the point. When you look around, there are actually many, many yards. I photographed literally hundreds of them that have a rich diversity of plant life. The difference between their yard and mine was that neighbors didn't complain. Mine just (laughs) looks a little more wild. It looks a little shaggier. It has bright colors. It has a lot of leaves because I leave my leaves. I don't believe in leaf blowers or destroying the soil biodiversity or, you know, just and maybe some of my critics were right. Maybe I was just a little bit garden lazy, but that's not, truthfully, that's not the reason we did it. We did it because we wanted to be efficient and effective with how we manage the yard. I think garden lazy could be a I hashtag. think that's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> garden lazy. And I think people need to send you their garden lazy, beautiful yard. <laughs> Relax and, and lie yeah, around we should, a little more. We should lie aspire around. to garden lazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like to work hard when it comes to projects like this, but my private yard, just like yours, is is there for your relaxation and your mental health and well-being. And I work pretty hard in the garden, but mostly to support all those other species, not mowing anything. Right. Mm, yeah. So what are you doing in your work life right now? So you're teaching. How has this translated into work with your students or work you're doing on policy? Really great question to ask. Thank you. Because so much of my work is really about training the next generation of mm-hmm. planners and designers. But most of all, it's actually an active research practice. Mm-hmm. We are a studio-based program, which means that we're experiential learning. We learn with and in our communities. And so I teach principally graduate students right now. And they work with me in my research lab, which is the Ecological Design Lab. Yep. Mm-hmm. And their projects are very much inclusive of this way of thinking. They're all related to biophilia broadly, but more specifically, they are about making landscape connections tangible in cities for humans and for wildlife. And a lot of them are doing research on bylaws. In fact, we have a studio project right now together with the Biophilic Cities Network that is looking at the 14 partner cities and their municipal codes to find out where are the barriers and opportunities to support biodiversity in the biophilic cities and what can we learn from each other, which of course, as you know, is a big part of the point. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, we're we're going to share those results at the end of the term and really looking forward to learning from other cities. We've discovered an awful lot of cities have plants that are required to be lower than eight inches. Can you believe it? (laughs) That's a lot of- That is lower than eight inches? How is it even like a law? I don't even understand. It is a strange and weird part of the municipal code that we're hoping to bust open and put some light in there, put some more wild growth into the code. Speaking to that and your studies and doing this with the biophilic cities, are you learning more, seeing more gateways into how we then build cities for climate change across the board? What is your thought about that? 
That's the long-term goal for sure. Mm -hmm. This particular project is starting in a quite narrow scope. We're looking literally at the municipal codes in these 14 cities together with our partners at Biophilic Cities Network. And what we're doing from that is looking at how can cities support not only in public spaces, but in private yards and gardens, including rights of ways, privately owned public spaces, those transitional spaces between the private realm and the public. What can cities do in a very tangible and grounded way, literally, mm-hmm. to support biodiversity with an eye not only to supporting a wide range of native species, but because within climate change, we know that we need a resilient matrix of species as conditions change. So we have to have species that can adapt to drought, drought and deluge, sometimes in the same season sure. uh, across North America, particularly for food resilience. In some cases, we're looking for reasons of environmental and social justice to allow people to grow food in their gardens, fruit on their rooftops. These ideas extend from the front door, you might say, oh, yeah. into the backyards and the public realm broadly. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that this will provide a real toolkit for municipalities, particularly municipal leaders in planning and design, to showcase how these tools can support a more climate resilient urban Mm -hmm. fabric. Mm -hmm. And of course, the benefits of that include looking at our mental health and wellness Mm -hmm. and the relationship that we have through plant life and wildlife to Mm -hmm. our own health and wellness. One of the things that I noticed for the Ecological Design Lab is we've talked a little bit about the land and resilience, but I just want to throw out for our listeners, the lab also works with green and blue infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we might think we know what that is and I can make a guess and I, you know, I I know enough, but will you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between the two and one or two examples of how those can be resilient opportunities? Because we know so much of our infrastructure is aging across the country, whether that's bridges or sewers or stormwater. Exactly. We usually think of infrastructure as human designed, civil engineered concrete and steel. We think of green infrastructure as roads, bridges, pipelines and sewers, Mm -hmm. as you suggested. And we think municipally, and I think most people who vote will also think, well, we have to spend money on that infrastructure. We have to invest in it because, as you say, it's crumbling across North America. Mm -hmm. Most of our infrastructure is post-Second World War. It is reaching its natural lifespan. And what we're realizing is that investment may be better placed in living infrastructure, infrastructure which is alive and carries with it the benefits of nature, ecosystem system services and maybe more technical terms, or what I think of as nature-based solutions, solutions to climate change that are rooted in the natural and living world and all of its benefits, not in the systems that actually created the problems in the first place. So Mm -hmm. that's not to say that we don't invest in gray infrastructure, but that in tandem with that investment, we also see a valuable economic investment in what is alive. So green roofs, living walls, for example, we might consider purpose-built, human-designed green infrastructure that has a component that is alive. Mm-hmm. So a green roof or a living wall, a bioswale, for example, mm-hmm. those are all good examples of green infrastructure. That's the way we define it. Others might talk about forests as green infrastructure. That's a different category. But sure. for our purposes, we're talking about human designed uh-huh. in urban infrastructure. When we say blue infrastructure, it's a way of defining it from the green. That means its principal performance, if you will, is to convey slow, hold and soak water. So some people might say a bioswale whale is both green and blue. We also think about daylighting creeks or the renaturalization of shorelines, meaning that where we have areas that are a hard resistant dock wall, we might puncture that and allow a wetland to flourish as a 
soaking, holding, slowing, and absorbing kind mm-hmm. of infrastructure that just performs a different set of functions. I love and that. it moves us from a resistant infrastructure to a more resilient infrastructure. Right. Mm-hmm. Imagine resistance is putting up a wall or a concrete berm or a revetment in a, a channel. This is sure. softening that and allowing life to get in. So mm-hmm. allowing the plant material, the root masses, and the functions of those vegetation qualities to help with absorption, elasticity in some cases, and more mm-hmm. adaptability in the face of climate change. We mm-hmm. have a couple Gabian, I think I'm saying that correctly, bridges at CRMB, which I, th- I guess would be more green infrastructure, possibly. Would that be? Because it the bridges be. themselves are these sort of living bridges, steel cages are stacked on top of each yes. other for the listener. That Great example. You, mm-hmm. Most people don't know they're there. You really have to walk down on the trails and look back on the bridge, because if you're on it, you just think, what's oh, a bridge? But being able to have the wildlife pulled up close to it because it's Gabion and it's not this, I guess, steel structure is magical to me because it sits within nature rather than encroaching upon it with something else. I think you're raising something really important, Monica, that really goes to how we see and understand our relationship with nature. Mm. If we can make these functions visible to people, if we make them legible, more than just visible, but we actually help people to understand and read what these infrastructures are and what they do, we create a kind of common understanding of them. Mm. My friend Jane Wolf writes a lot about the ideas of making legible and understanding what landscapes do. And I think Mm. she's right on because if we can understand if we can see and understand, mm-hmm. we can value them. We, yes. we naturally value yes. anything unless we understand it. And so it's a really yep. important part of the biophilic cities work, I think, to make these infrastructures legible and mm-hmm. frankly beautiful. Mm-hmm. We invest in things and we care for them when they're beautiful. And when we share that understanding with people about why these structures are necessary and also all the benefits they perform for us, that is a beautiful thing. It really mm-hmm. is. It's just, it's beautiful for our brains. Like you just said that well-being of the spaces, once we recognize it and understand it, that's when the stewardship comes in to saying, I really believe in this. This is beautiful. Why would I want it any other way? And how do I protect it and make it better for myself, for my community, loved ones? So you're absolutely right. I love that. Where can people look? Because we've talked about bylaws and policies. If I want to see if my neighborhood, I can do this in my neighborhood, where would I go to find a code? And then how could I start that dialogue with, I guess, maybe my city council? Is that who I go to? How do I make that change? Wow. That's a series of technical steps that I think a lot of people would find daunting. And Mm -hmm. that's actually part of the reason I wanted to take on this bylaw challenge was to really allow people to bypass the need for permission to do Mm. something that is in keeping with all of the principles of biodiversity and climate change. So my advice to most citizens is leave your leaves, have a beautiful yard that has many different species in it and champion that. It's rare that people would be called out in this moment for doing what I did. It's a bit unusual, actually. And what we're really trying to do with this story is to show people that what we need is to make this movement together. If you have a lot of people 
taking a different alternative to the, just the lawn. I mean, have a bit of lawn if you like it, that's fine. But there's a lot of other opportunities there. There are neighborhood organizations all the time, organizations that do urban agriculture, organizations that trade seeds once a year, your native plant exchange, for example. We know that even if people don't have a yard, and many people don't, they live in condos or apartment buildings, there are opportunities usually to steward the land at the base of the apartment building or the tower, get involved with your condo board, talk to the apartment owner about what you might do to diversify if it's a lawn or provide even food for people. Oftentimes in our community schools, our community centers, these are places we can put our hands into the ground together Mm. to grow something that's productive. And the best way we can do it is to lead by doing And some people feel it's perhaps easier to share information at a local citizens group or to get involved with a community based organization that even if it's a business improvement district, for example, a lot of BIAs or business improvement associations will take over planting Mm -hmm. a street for beautification. That's a way to talk about, well, what do we want to have in those planters? Maybe we need something more than just Mm -hmm. the standard annual plants, but perhaps Mm -hmm. we want plants that are food based or that are pollinator specific. So Hmm. lots of things that I think are easy to do on a small scale, but collectively use many hands and they add up. I love it. Yeah. Where can we find you on Twitter? What's your handle so we can follow you? <laughs> Pretty easy. It's my name. Okay, and great. I'm, Perfect. And I'm Lister. And I'm Lister. Most of all, please come to the ecologicaldesignlab.ca and see the work of my students. They are just an incredibly inspiring group of young people who, despite climate anxiety and all of the fears and concerns that we share with uncertainty, they are doing things and they're really supportive. They're engaged in their communities. And there's lots of great examples about how you can get involved in your community as well. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank so you so much, Nina Marie. We can't wait to like actually meet you in person. Yeah. Oh, I missed going to Serenade this year. I've never I, been. So oh, maybe next time. Nina Marie, you would love it so much. When I first went to Serenade three years ago, I was just in awe. And that's why I love everything about Serenade because it really is a transformative place. So I think you will absolutely thank love you. it there. And thanks for helping me pronounce it correctly. Oh, yeah, no, of course, everybody gets I'm it I'm looking forward to seeing you in person at some point. And I thank you very much for inviting me to speak to your engaged listeners today. Oh, what a joy. Thank, thank you. you so much, Nina Marie. Wow. Okay. I love that so much. I know. Who knew a conversation about city codes could be so fascinating? Yes. It's so interesting to me that the lawn really comes out of this very Eurocentric conception of leisure and looking out on these manicured pastoral landscapes. Right. And that's so different from so much of the biodiversity in North America. Yes, but it's so pervasive that I don't think it's something that most people even think about, even if they are the person who's interested in the environment and biodiversity. But she was really quick to point out that the lawn does have a place in society in public spaces. A large public lawn is actually really useful in providing a gathering place for people. But do each of us really need a massive lawn of our own when we could actually do something that has a greater overall impact? Well, and to that end, the response to her own garden yard in Toronto is overwhelmingly positive. Right, which shouldn't surprise us because we all know that a flourishing wild natural environment has massive positive impacts on human health. It's all a huge circle. That's right, Jennifer. And we'll talk to you later with another fabulous guest in a few weeks. Can't wait. Bye. Bye.